0: My guest today is the founder and CEO of Air Marketing. Here's what some of his colleagues and clients say about him. Many business owners talk the talk, but Owen really demonstrates how to be an excellent managing director and leader of his company. He is genuinely empowering and challenges his team to perform to the best of their abilities. The results speak for themselves. Owen is an exceptional manager and strategist. Owen has the ability to bring out the best in his workplace, along with building strong, profitable relationships with his clients. And finally, Owen is an outstanding people leader and a natural negotiator. He has the ability to build trusted and genuine relationships and is an invaluable asset to any business. Owen Richards, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What an intro! It's your it's, it's your content, man. I did you know, I <laughs> your LinkedIn. It's there. I'm it, myself. Well, <laughs> core, and there was a lot more of them. I only I could only pick a small selection. It's it's quite it's always have this uh, response It's quite interesting that I'll often when I introduce people I'll say, "Well, what do people say about them?" And, and an obvious place to look is LinkedIn. And then people hear it and they go, oh wow, that's me. That's, mm-hmm. That sounds kind of cool. And it's funny, we all have those, most on a LinkedIn pl- platform. and we, we tend to ignore them or not pay attention to them until we hear them coming out of somebody else's mouth. Mm. And, and it feels different, it's a, it's a weird one. It's, I've never quite understood that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, welcome to the podcast. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, on about where you grew up, wh- what that was like
1: yeah sure. um I grew up in Kent, Garden of England, um, and uh, I went to a you know normal upbringing, um, an elder brother three years older than me that, that bashed me around a lot, as you'd expect and uh, and a very caring and loving mum and dad who looked after me well and uh, went to a, a very good school um, in Canterbury, Simon Langton, which is a a boys grammar school, which is uh, you know, I look back on mostly fondly, I think, but uh, yeah, at a very normal positive, um, loving upbringing, I suppose, and, and then went off to university in London, um, went to Roehampton University, and then moved to Australia for eight years. So a bit of a bit of a, a difference between there and Kent. But I, I I don't have one of those amazing stories that I came from, you know, from rags to riches or anything like that. It's a, it's a very normal middle-of-the-road upbringing I'm afraid so sorry it's pretty boring I think
0: (laughs) Well, as as somebody who has two older brothers you said you know getting bashed around a bit Uh, mine would say to me that it was uh, character forming
1: absolutely well I've got three boys so I've got three young boys and that's the kind of thing I hear myself saying to them all the time
0: (laughs) Uh, you said you moved to Australia what what was part prompted that
1: Uh, I guess like 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 anybody it's 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 usually one of two things work or work or or, or a woman, um, and in my case it was a woman, um, so my uh, my wife and I met at university and we went to we went to, to Australia traveling for a year after university um, and that happened to coincide with the, the global financial crisis. Um, and we had half decent jobs in, well, we had good jobs in Australia yeah. and most of our sort of recently graduated friends were struggling to find work in, in the UK. And we were we were in London prior to, to to going to Australia. So we were fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to get sponsored, to stay there. And we, we did it, intend to stay for a couple of years and we ended up staying for nearly eight years. So it was yeah. just like anything you fall into it. And it's just the way that, that, that life goes, um, that we always knew we'd come home Eventually, particularly when we talked about family um, and starting a family, but yeah, we had we you know we had our twenties in Australia, and you can't complain about that.
0: And you were a teacher when you were in Australia, and
1: uh, yeah, for a while. Um, so when I landed in Australia, I didn't know what what I wanted to do. Um, musical, um, I love the theatre, and I like anything. Sort of looked in, in those days. It was the local paper, um, and there was a a, a part time uh, job teaching teaching children music and drama and it's both both of which are a passion of mine and um, and so I did that for a while when I landed there before I fell into sales um, so yeah not not a straight line story by any means
0: you studied theater in college I was wondering is there any do you see any parallels between that world and the world you're in today
1: yeah I do hundred um, percent so I, I I have a passion for, for theater all things theater music full stop um, I've never wanted to be a performer or, or, or go down that practical route but I enjoy I enjoy the subject and I enjoy the experience um, I, I think as part of being in and around that world you learn you learn a lot you, you go out of your comfort zone a lot you learn a lot about performance you learn a lot about um, uh, about confidence and how to hold yourself in certain environments and um, yeah I think that the, the interpersonal skills that I learned, just from being at university, full stop, I think, more than anything else in the life skills. But yeah, some of the stuff that you pick up along the way and those are, are absolutely transferable into what I do today. Maybe not directly, indirectly, but they, you know, they certainly they certainly help me.
0: Yeah. And did you come from a, a background of musical theatre or is it the fact you were the youngest child and youngest children, being one myself, often go into the areas where you like to be on stage because you got a lot of that when you were a kid.
1: Yeah, do you know what? I, I, there, there isn't music in my family at all. I'm very much an, a, a, an exception. Look, I'm not. I'm not the most talented musician in the world. I just enjoy it, and 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 as such, i have spent time um, doing it in in and around that world, and 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 just enjoying the process. Um, I think you're probably right with your uh, latter um possibility there which is that as a younger child i, I stood out and look, i'm a natural extrovert i feed off of people and the energy of people and always have so um yeah I'm not, I'm not afraid to say that despite the fact that i get nervous like anybody else i absolutely get a buzz from public speaking and i get a buzz from being in front of people and basically being the center of attention i think more than anything else so um i think yeah you're probably right it's just a natural instinct
0: yeah, yeah i i often wonder that you in terms of birth order and how it influences our personalities and Mm. and i did see one of your testimonials somebody say remark that you are an excellent public speaker and that doesn't come by chance it requires honing and practice and Mm. i i think if if you don't get a a buzz out of it it's not something you're ever going to put up with the 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 anxiety because you're right beforehand as well no matter how good you are there's always the the butterflies and so on um when you were growing up in canterbury was there any clues in terms of you said it was a very kind of steady any type of upbringing was there any clues in that that pointed to you paddling your own canoe starting your own business and pursuing your own goals
1: yeah i I think there's there are probably three things that, that that you can tie together with where i've ended up now um one is the fact that my, my father was entrepreneurial to some degree, um, and I think when you look up at somebody who does their own thing, um, you see the, well, you see the pros and the cons, but you definitely, you know, you're inspired by that. So um, yeah, 100% that that has had an influence. Um, and my dad went from, we were a very poor family when I was very young, um, and didn't have, I didn't have opportunities um, that I had in my latter childhood years, my dad decided to do something about it and start his own thing, and as a result, he was able to build a, a much better level of affluence and a, and a much better lifestyle for us. And, and I sort of saw saw that journey, albeit as a child firsthand. So that that has definitely sat somewhere within me. Um, I, I think also there was a natural leadership quality there for me that 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 I knew was there. So played a lot of sport. I'm hugely competitive. Probably one of my downsides as well as one of my upsides, but I am that person that won't we've got a table tennis table in the office. And if somebody beats me and I've never played them before, I won't let them leave the table until I beat them. You know, I am that person and I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit it. There are upsides and downsides of it, but I've always had that in me and, and I think I've always been able to channel that into a a positive for people around me. So sports teams I was regularly captain and that sort of stuff growing up and I think I didn't I don't think I consciously tried to do that That was just the personality I had uh, and and the way that I would want to encourage people to be better and I would be vocal about what we needed to do and take take a natural a natural leadership stance and I think the third thing is just that I've got a a huge amount of energy as a person um so I'm not satisfied doing what I'm doing today. I'm always wanting to be better. That is something that I think is just, whether it's nature or nurture, I don't know, but it's not something you design. And um, it it, it at times is a restlessness and has a a negative impact because sometimes I have to force myself to be present and to acknowledge what I'm doing and what I've achieved and what we're doing in in, in the day. But I'm always looking at tomorrow and what's next and where can we go? And and I've always been like that. So Mm. boxing me into a typical employee Particularly if you're in SME land, the ambition level just doesn't suit that. And I knew early stages that I couldn't go in a white collar normal box and be happy there. I knew that from start even before starting my career. Um, so I think you know, like anything, you feel you feel like you might be a bit different to, from the normal person, and and that 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 there might be something that you need that that maybe other people don't to be happy and to be satisfied and. Um, there's definite negatives to that, but it also forces you to go and do something that a lot of people wouldn't, and take risks, and 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 you know take chances on things and back yourself.
0: So competing and winning are things that that give you a sense of accomplishment. What else?
1: Um, my children, without a doubt, I think you know I've got three young boys. My oldest is 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 five, about to turn six. Um, my youngest just turned one last weekend, so of we a five year gap between three boys and they are, you know, they're in that really young stage and they bring me, they bring me joy every day. Um, and I think of all the things that you achieve in life, parenthood has a, has a very special place um, and is, is very much incomparable to anything else I've ever done um, and anything I've experienced. So certainly that, I, I think the other thing, if I take it back to professional life, is creating careers for people. Um, I've always said the reason, one of the reasons that, that that I do what I do is obviously to create wealth and opportunity for me and my family. But I absolutely love seeing the same happen with people who are committed and loyal to us as an organization, to people that I care about within the company. And I, I'll give an example. Um, there's a the gentleman who started with us, whose um, name's Marco, who started with us. the early stages of the company at the age of 21 he's now our sales director he has multiplied his income by by lots i've seen him buy his first and now second property i've seen him evolve from a you know a very young adult um or just out of childhood into a stable relationship and starting to think about family and those sorts of things and i've seen him move into a into a you know into a leader and genuinely leading other people and having a positive impact on our business. And seeing that journey is something I take a lot of pride in. And it's not just him, that's multiple people across the organization. So I think that's something that feels like a real accomplishment for me. Mm.
0: I saw a video you'd put up on LinkedIn last week, week before, and it was your first day back in the office together. It clearly Mm. meant a lot to you.
1: Yeah, it did. You know, I I mentioned earlier in the conversation, I'm unashamedly an extrovert. I feed off of people um, and, i i actually think and i've said this probably for the last month or so and i've only just really identified it to myself i think i suffered some i don't know if you call it emotional but some emotional i'll call it emotional emotional trauma last year with lockdown because when you put a person like me in a box we really struggle and i did and i don't think i realized at the time because i'm reasonably resilient and i got my head down and i had to make sure the business was okay and make sure the family was okay and play the role, but having got through that and and now got a taste of real life back into uh, into what I'm doing, I've just realised how how hard that was for me, as well as many other people, um, but certainly people with my personality who feed off of the energy of other people. So um, I've been in the office all the way through, because even if there was one other person or two people in the office, I wanted to be here with people. Um, and' I've, I've committed to, to doing that, albeit when we were in strict lockdown, I was at home like everybody else, but when when we were when it became a bit more gray, I was in the office because I wanted to be here and around people. We, like everybody else, have had a a, 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 a variety of responses to coming back into the office. and I think the world has changed for everybody. Mm. So to see 60 people in the office or whatever we managed to get last week, um, we've got 80, 85 in the business as a whole. Naturally, we didn't get everybody, some were still isolating, a couple had COVID, some were ill, some were on leave, um, but I think we got 55, 60 people in the office to see everybody collaborating, feeding off of each other, enjoying each other's company and forgetting about what's happened in the world in the last 18 months and just genuinely you know, enjoying themselves and enjoying work at a different level to what they could at home, Was uh, it was truly amazing genuinely mean that and and yeah it did mean a lot to me because the people in the business is, is is the biggest part of it and without that over the last 18 months i haven't been able to see the things i would normally see or feel the things that i would normally feel and it was a it was a validation that we we're, we're doing well and that, that, that there's a there's a positive future ahead
0: when you walk into an office like that and you see so many people and so many smiling faces and i'm sure many of them were so glad to be back just like yourself it must fill you with an awful lot of pride that you built this.
1: Yeah, it, it does. And I think it's something that doesn't, um, it's not a thought that comes naturally. You don't walk into a room like that and say, I built this. Um, I think you have to stop yourself and remind yourself of that. And days like that do exactly that for me. So we had a normal day until three o'clock and then we did a big company presentation, vision for 2022, what we've achieved in 2021, um, some company awards that we normally do at the end of the year, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and it's moments like that, that I do give myself the opportunity to step back because I move fast, I'm 100 miles an hour all the time. I don't tend to give myself the opportunity to reflect um, backwards very often, because as I said earlier, I'm always looking forwards at what's next. It's moments like that that allow you to do it and always force you to do it. And yeah, there's a huge amount of pride for for what we're achieving. Um, and it's it's nice to do that every so often but I'm not gonna sit there for long because I'm still focused on how can we get to the next bit. So pride is good, but if I sit on it too long, I'm not focused on where we go next. So it's a bit of a balance, isn't
0: it? I get that. Yeah, well, well-deserved one, tr- truly. Uh, tell me, you mentioned about the vision for 2022 in as much as you can, could you share that with us?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, Air, Air, primarily, uh, historically at least, has been an outsourced sales business. So um outsource sdr telemarketing lead gen um booking booking meetings into sales teams pipelines for, for b2b organizations okay. um, we a couple of years ago built a, a marketing service into the mix so we were able to supplement the sales outreach with uh, marketing outreach as well with inbound marketing and try and drive demand across multiple channels um, and one of our big goals for next year is to make sure that we move that service level forwards at a much faster rate we, the outsourced sales business is hard work. It is um, hugely rewarding, but you know it's a, it's a world where what we're doing is intangible. It's very difficult to get right. Clients have very high expectations. And, and ultimately, the, the, the market is getting harder and harder a lot of the time. Um, so the diversity of what we have to offer as a company has been a big focus for us for the last 12 months. And an acceleration of our marketing services is a key part of our strategy for next year. We're also looking at... How do we grow our sales services and and build stability in our operational systems and processes? So every so often in order to grow faster, you have to slow down a bit. What I'm not gonna do is allow that to happen across the whole company, but that service line particularly needs to have a period of stability. We've gone from COVID taking us down to, 25, 30 sales reps across that team to building up to 60, 65 in the last 12 months. So we've doubled our, our, our sort of operational team. And that means there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of things that were good systems and processes before, but we've outgrown. And because we're always, I always talk about the speed you're moving at, we're sprinting and it's very hard to stop and change direction or move things around when you're sprinting sometimes you have to pull it back to a jog or a walk to fix some of those things to allow you to go again so um, it goes against the grain in many many ways but across our sales services we're looking for stability and stable growth so a smaller percentage of growth but a more reliable revenue stream and a more um, a more more sort of um, yeah sustainable and and, and, and settled um, operation and alongside that we're looking to grow our marketing services at a lot faster rate um, and one or two new service offerings that we're, we've we got in the workings now. So our growth will be sideways growth as well as upwards growth. Um, and, you know, that's a conscious strategy that we feel is the right way for us to move forwards, so that we don't see the wheels fall off, fall off entirely because, you know, fast growth is hard, particularly when you're running a people business where there's a hell of a lot of moving parts and the product is very
0: unreliable. Yeah, I wanna to talk to you about that, uh, that, that people side because your business is, is very much a people business, and mm. <laughs> that's the hardest business of all. There's no question about it, particularly when you've got people who are well-educated, highly skilled, and have, as a result of high expectations. And so it's, if you've got 80 people in the business, it's 80 moving parts, essentially, and, mm. and getting them aligned, on certain tracks at least, is an enviable task but you said something else I wanted to dwell on first, which was you know, on, certainly on the outsource STR side, you said it's mm. getting more difficult. In what way is, is, is it, where are the headwinds in that business that the greatest challenges? Uh, I think it's
1: two or threefold. Um, first and foremost, five, 10 years ago, you picked up the phone and people answered it. Um, nowadays, they don't so much. And I think the str- yeah, that's a really simple problem, but it is a, uh, it is a very tangible challenge that you know I do X and an X percent and Y percent of the time something happens has bec- that Y has become a lot smaller. So you know, however people want to to, to make sales a, a really cool game, numbers still count in sales. I'm a I'm a you know, mathematician at heart. I love the numbers and the data behind sales. Bit of a you know a sales scientist and and you know ultimately if I'm the same quality of salesperson and I speak to Ten people, uh, or I speak to twenty people. Nine times out of ten, at least the twenty people is going to have a better outcome. So, um, you know, the fact that we speak to fewer people makes it harder. There is a lot more noise. The uh, the SDR SDR model has become uh, more fashionable. Something that people realise they can invest in and and they can control growth with a bit better. And that means there's a lot more salespeople. And 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 the second thing is that we see we see more channels. So you've got to master LinkedIn, you've got to master copywriting. Salespeople used to have to be good verbal communicators if they were inside sales, you know, using the phone, um, and, and and physical body language communicators as well if they were in field sales. Now they have to be good copywriters, they have to be creative, they have to be good on video, they have to be able to research prospects and personalize and all this sort of stuff. And. I think we've overcomplicated sales in many, many ways. Um, sometimes we need to do it; we need to be complex with what we're doing. Other times, we're trying to do it unnecessarily, and as a result, we make it harder than it needs to be. Um, so, I think it's a lot of it is the noise, and that 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 comes from you know the amount of activity, but also the fact that we've got these sales technology platforms who are selling the dream into sales teams and sales leaders across the world that ultimately this technology will solve all of your problems. But you know what? It doesn't matter what technology you use. You're only ever going to be as good as the people that are using it. Um, oh. And I, I think that the world has moved to a place where you and I and, and other senior leaders in business are getting peppered with poor sales messages. People hiding behind email. People hiding behind LinkedIn and thinking that by firing you know, crappy messages across those channels that I'm going to get I'm going to get engagement. And what I do is actually create lots of noise that makes it harder for people who are trying to do it well. So. It it is a tough market, um, but that's why we exist. And that's why the the highs are so high because when it works and it works well, geez, you know, you've earned it.
0: For sure. Tell me, what's your favorite piece of sales tech and why?
1: Uh, That's a big, that's a big question. Um, So I'm currently a big fan of video. Um, I really like the fact that we've embraced in a virtual sales world, yes a, a, another way of doing face- to-face so I'm a big fan of Vidyard. um whether it's my fam- my favorite or not I don't know um, I think that that something like connect and sell has a really interesting place in the market and allows you to go a lot faster as well um, and, and and you know I, you can't talk about sales tech and not mention things like outreach and sales loft I don't know that I can hang my hat on one and say it's my favorite but um, you know, things like that stand out to me as things yeah. that are making the, making the world better for, for salespeople when they're used in the right way by the right people.
0: Okay, let me ask you then a slightly different way. If all your systems went down, which would be the first one you'd plug back in?
1: Uh, the phone is the answer.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, absolutely the phone. At heart. That's absolutely. <laughs> I love it
1: yeah absolutely, absolutely. I let the sales techs are no good if you can't talk to people and this is the point is that email linkedin all those sorts of things they should be a vehicle to get you talking to somebody whether it's in this channel or over you know a zoom or video call or over the phone we or you know on your mobiles or whatsapp calls or whatever but everything leads you to wanting to engage with people at a human level and mm-hmm. and that needs to be done with at least voice um not in copy you know we 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 connect with people so much faster when we're using verbal communication and, and, and or visual communication when it's written communication it takes hundreds of times longer to get anywhere near the same level of rapport so yeah I, I would take the phone over any piece of sales tech any day
0: yeah there's also i mean you mentioned the copywriting thing which you're the second person to mention that it's, mm. it's interesting that the other person who said it to me on the podcast it was heavily involved with sdr nation in the states mm. Yeah. And, 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 and I asked him if you were minister for education or secretary for education and you could put one subject mandatory on the school curriculum, what would it be? And without blinking, he said copywriting. And uh, I, you're absolutely right. I think it's 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 been forced forced on people in many respects because people are not answering the phone the way they used to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess probably with pandemic, people were just not at their phones, certainly not at their published office numbers uh, mm. at, the, at the same. Yeah. But let me actually, let me ask you the same question. If you were secretary for education and you could make one subject mandatory, what would you make mandatory?
1: Uh, sales. sales. So there, there is no formal education for sales. No. And yet, I, uh, you know, we look at the percentage of population who are in sales and then look at the percentage of the population who don't have sales in their title, but who have to sell something as part of their role. So, you know, whether you're in recruitment or you are, you know, this, you know whether you run your own business or you uh, you run a cafe, you're always selling in those environments yet nobody is taught how to do it well and properly. Um, so so I, 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 it baffles me that there's no sales degree out there um, and that, that we don't go through school learning how to how to sell and how to sell well and that 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 feeds into the problem that we end up with people coming into sales who fall into it rather than choose to go into it because it's not it's not pinned as something as that, that we should learn as a core skill so yeah for me the fact that sales doesn't sit in our in our curriculum anywhere through school or tertiary education is 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 yeah. absolutely bonkers.
0: I'm wondering is that because there's no demand for it or is it because academics maybe have a low regard for sales, they don't see it as like marketing or... I Any mean, of the arts, for example. Yeah, I think if you
1: went into the, you know, went into a into a random pub and spoke to, to 20 people and asked them their opinion of sales, um, you'd probably get one or two people who are in around the world world of commerce and either work in sales or have worked in sales or know somebody or are close to somebody who works in sales, they might give you a more sensible concept. But I would have thought that you know 70, 80 percent plus of those people would have a a negative opinion of it, or they would think of you know, charity salespeople on the street, they think of cold calling at home to sell them, you know, PPI insurance or whatever it is, they think of, you know, pushy salespeople from overseas, they think of all of these negative things before they thought of, um, you know, the VP of sales for a 100 million pounds funded sales tech company, because they've got no concept of what that is. And that's, that's a that's an institutional problem. We have a responsibility to educate people that sales is a a good career and you know organizations come private companies and public companies have a a responsibility to do the same ultimately you know most organizations hire salespeople. if you think of a typical founder md of a, of a, a company who starts a small business let's say in exeter where i am they'll go and hire a salesperson they have no idea what a good salesperson looks like none whatsoever they'll go for a confident person somebody who can sell themselves in the interview but their, their their sales theory their 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 understanding of what good sales looks like is 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 I would hazard a guess non-existent for most business owners that haven't grown up in sales. so um as a result we feed the problem and we we, we bring people into roles and we measure them in the wrong way and we we don't develop them with, with the with the right um the right coaching or the right environment we don't give them the right tools and it's a it's a it's a vicious spiral. so you know this is it's like any um proper it's a cultural one for us as 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 people um and it's something that will only will only move forward with systems theory you need education feeding into it you need commerce and business feeding into it you need government feeding into it and you need individuals feeding into that into it and without all of those parts moving together at some speed at least it will just stay where it is and people like you and i and others that are trying to make a difference will always be pushing you know pushing things uphill
0: yeah and I know sales was far away in some respects from what you studied in college. At what point did you then, at what point for you did the penny drop in terms of what sales really is, that it's not its not what the public perception is, that when it's done well, it's something entirely different?
1: Yeah, I think when I landed in Oz and I got a job as, I, I tend to call it an SDR nowadays, but in those days it wasn't, it was a telemarketing sales rep or inside sales rep um, because we didn't do anything other than phone people. Um, I, I my my now business partner is called Richard Forrest and he was my 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 boss in Australia. He gave me my first sale, first career sales role over in Australia, and um, I my perception of sales was you know somewhat similar to, to the sorts of examples I've given you. Um, but I needed a job, and I think for years and years people have said to me you'd be great at sales because that's what everyone says to anybody who can talk and you know has a bit of confidence, um, and. I landed in that job and probably six months in, I would say, I, well, first and foremost, I was blown away by Richard because he's, he's well, he's a huge career ment- mentor and inspiration for me, but more importantly, he's a very gentle, very kind, uh, very um, considered person. He is not your typical big personality, gonna talk to everybody, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is what you kind of pigeonhole salespeople as. Yeah, he ran a, sa- a sales organization. Uh, and that was immediately, a. Okay, this is interesting moment for me. Um, and then working with him and seeing the way that he ran the operation for a, enough time to realise that there is actually a theory behind this, and there is, there is a, a, you know, there is something you can educate yourself on. And I can process this. I can put this into a. If I say that, I get that response. If I respond to these things that way, I get, you know, I can move people through the journey of the conversation. And I. I made it my business to learn how I could get better, not just by putting more energy in, but actually by understanding why buyers respond in a certain way and how they feel in that conversation and what they do at certain points. And suddenly you realize that it's like anything, it's a process. And if you master that process as a science, um, then you get better at something and and you consciously change the way that you behave in order to get a better outcome, which is no different to the way that we learn anything else. Um, So yeah, probably in that first year or so that I worked, worked in sales, having, a, having, a, having a, a great leader and a great um, inspiration to, 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 be, to be coached by.
0: And how much of your sales acumen was formed that way in terms of observation, learning, t- trial and testing, and how much of it was formalized where you sat through something or you participated in something that was designed to kind of accelerate that process?
1: Uh, it, it, it is as close to 100% as on the job as um, as any example and, and in some ways it's something I regret because maybe I could have learned it sooner had I gone through formal education that takes me back to your question about school if I'd have had some of that understanding going into the job I'd have had a maybe a, a walking or a running start um, but my, my career was yeah we were a small business getting it off the ground you know hand to mouth bootstrapped, all that sort of stuff, there wasn't time to be going off and doing courses, there was, there was time to get stuck in and, and move it forward. And that was it. So my, uh, it was only in my latter career in Australia, running that business, when I got into leadership roles, that I thought, you know what, I just need to validate what I think, and what I learn. Um, and as I went around on my travels, I realised that there were a lot of people preaching about sales and structural sales and a lot of people that didn't know what they were talking about. So it's actually very hard to cut through the noise in that kind of formal education, which again pushes me towards actually we need a benchmark, we need a standard, we need a a structure that we all kind of can commit to. This is the way that you should be selling because I could go to, to 10 different sales trainers and they're all training a different way. They're all training based on different ideas and most of them have come up with it themselves or borrowed it from somewhere else. So um yeah i think the on the job stuff but with a conscious um a conscious approach whereby you step back and actually think about what you're doing and measure it and are scientific in your approach rather than just going at it and organically learning through subconscious um that's really important for me that you think and you're self-aware enough to say all right i got that outcome let's try it a different way or let's think about and talk to other people about how we can how we can change the approach to 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 re-measure and go again
0: one of the things you often hear as people move from sales into a leadership role is that they come through sales it's an unforgiving business so therefore if you come through it successfully you don't come through unscathed you have a lot of battle scars i mean that in the most positive way you know, you've learned a lot of skills mm. and you have a strong bullshit detector all of those things that come with you and they can come into leadership kind of going and you have a good sense of who you are and and you're you're confident why did you have to learn new things to make you a better leader than the one you were coming into leadership?
1: Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because um, I ha- I was I started leading at 23, 24 years old, which actually is really young. And I think the biggest lesson for me is that when you're a leader, it ain't all about you. Um, which at 23, 24, when you know you you you're backing yourself and you've got that invincibility feeling and you're, you're getting somewhere in your career is actually really hard to change your mentality on. Um, so I, I think that was a lesson for me, definitely that, you know, when you're doing well in sales and people are celebrating you and your results, and then you step into a leader role, no one talks about you. Nobody talks about you if you're doing well. Um, and that, that, that for somebody who likes a pat on the back is, was a, was a hard lesson for me to learn that it, it it's not about me. It's about the people that you, that you, you've got to elevate and that you've got to support. Um, so that's one. And the other, the other piece, and you kind of touched on it earlier, is that people are unpredictable. So when you're in a sales team as an individual contributor, I think you see the things that go around you, or go on around you with people, but it ain't your problem. It's not, it's not you whose shoulders it falls on. You haven't got to fix those problems. And whether those are emotional problems, mental health problems, performance problems, disciplinary problems, they happen in every sales team everywhere in the world, and, and not just sales teams as well. And when you become a leader, you suddenly realise it's you that everyone's looking to, to fix these problems, but no one trains you on how to deal with them. Um, and I think in the environment we're in that highly transactional sales world where we deal with a lot of rejection, where, you know, we get told no a lot. We, we we, we're, we, we you know, got to make 10, 20 calls just to have one conversation. It's monotonous at times, it's, it's repetitive. Um, we fail a lot, all those sorts of things. You tend to get a lot more of those issues than you would perhaps with don't know chartered accountants um as as an example so i think that for me was a really steep learning curve that geez i'm suddenly the one that has to have all the answers and you don't have to have all the answers but you certainly have to facilitate a motion that gets you to a positive outcome and everybody's looking at you to do that and i think that that is a really difficult transition
0: would you say that's the most difficult part of leadership
1: Yeah, I I would. I think the people, you know, you tend to plan and not think about the things that that can go wrong. Um, And when people don't behave the way that you want them to behave or the way that perhaps they should, we perceive they should behave. It's very tricky because the impact that has is internally on other people around them, externally on clients and their experience and ultimately intrinsically within you so if you're running a team and you want to get to an outcome and one person's behavior for whatever reason is blocking you getting to that outcome that's frustrating Mm. and you have to learn not to deal with that emotionally and not to deal with that um, at a personal level but deal with it professionally and understand that it's part of the part of the process so yeah I think it probably is if not the one of the hardest parts of learning to be a good leader in a people business
0: at least yeah And as somebody who's leading a people business, have you noticed any shifts in terms of how people need to be motivated and inspired in the workforce today, say, versus 10 years ago?
1: Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, I think certainly the topic around um, mental health and Um, The divide between, I think we weren't, 10 years ago, bringing emotion into the workplace was frowned upon, whereas now I think it's a very normal, accepted, natural thing, as it should have been then, and I think we have to lead in a different way, we have to be far more empathetic as people, whereas I think we kind of shut it in a box and left it at home at times, um, 10, 15 years ago. and And I think it's a good thing. I think that's the way it should be. But as leaders, we have to learn to deal with more confrontational conversations, things that we might be uncomfortable with again, things that we're not trained to deal, you know deal with. I think the percentage of time that I spend now feeling like I might need to be you know, in counselor mode or um you know listening mode or yeah you know, empathy mode versus ten years ago is is, is a lot higher um, without a doubt and That's because people are more confident and comfortable to talk about the way they feel and the impact and mm. Part of that is a cultural shift generally over the last 10 years, but part of that's the intensity of the last 18 months or so, because, you know, we've all been through something and, and, you know, it's impossible to ignore that. And it's a shared experience. So it's not a surprise when I bring it up and say, geez, I found the last couple of years really tough Mm -hmm. people have as well, because they're in that boat. So that means it's on the agenda more and it's been talked about more Mm -hmm. so. From that perspective yeah motivation wise hell no i think people are still motivated by the same things you know i think that we're we're all motivated by financial success opportunity in life time with family those things they're not changing anytime soon they've shifted a bit in so much that people are looking at it differently now But when I look at people being motivated, they're putting things in a different priority order, but it's still the same five or six things that people are motivated by. A great leader, wanting to feel a sense of belonging, wanting to know they're making an impact, money, opportunity, time with family. I mean, you know, those are the sorts of things that people are are, are genuinely motivated by. Pride and identity as well, I'd put in there potentially.
0: Yeah, I often find the money one is a funny one because I think in some respects, it's what enables all those other ones that you've talked about, which is more time, more... Uh, yeah yeah
1: i agree and look, when you look at money itself you know it is nothing i mean even down to if i go and give you a 10 pound note the 10 pound note i give you is, is not worth 10 pounds it's a piece of paper it's an iou it's not the money like you say it's what you're going do with that some people like to sit on it and it's the feeling they get from saving It's the feeling they get from it but ultimately that savings those savings become a deposit for a house or a holiday or whatever uh, and it's that bit that they enjoy. They just that might be a, a subconscious um, acknowledgement. And it's the it's like anything, it's the money that's the process. So I'm a big fan of look at, you know, listening to and reading about you know, elite athletes and people like that. And I think it's Mo Farah that said about there's somebody who wants to win a gold medal and there's somebody who really wants it. The people that really want it, they want the process. They want the training. They want to get up at five o'clock in the morning. They enjoy that part of it. They might not enjoy it in the moment, but they get the satisfaction out of the process. They're not winning the medal then, but they know that's part of the process. And so they want that. The people that just want it, in inverted commas, are people that want the medal, but they don't want the process to get there. And that's why I think money's important because one month's paycheck ain't gonna get you the deposit to the house for most people but it's part of the process, and I, I want that
0: way that. of thinking. I, I never looked at it that way, but I, I yeah, it's money is the process, I guess, mm. in your respects, or it's how we count it. Mm. Um, the in terms of the pandemic, as a leader, who's you know your business, you, you, you've you've had to come through a lot of ups and downs over the last eighteen months, both in terms of clients, the business itself, employees, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and of course your own how you feel about it and your family, et cetera. What's been good about it and what would you like to keep?
1: Hmm. Um, Great question. So things that were good for us as a business, uh, it gave me the opportunity to slow down, forced me to slow down because we had a big drop off in business in the very first lockdown, as as did many people in our sector. Uh, And I made different decisions as a result. So I reassessed what I wanted out of the business for myself. I reassessed what I needed around me in terms of key people. Um, And and actually we we re-diverted our strategy as a business and had to, and I'm in many ways grateful that we did that. I'll say today, very confidently, had COVID not happened, we wouldn't be, where we are in terms of business trajectory. I, I, I absolutely believe that. I think we'd be a smaller business. I don't think we would have had as good good a year. We had to go through that pain to learn what was working and what was not. And that gave us that opportunity to stand back and, and think about it and have different conversations to the ones that we perhaps would have had if we were, as I would say, we're sprinting, right? We're not stopping and thinking, we're just sprinting and doing. Um, so I'm grateful for that in many ways. I think also the things that I would keep are, the, the the flexibility and the, the acceptance of flexibility around where I work. I, I, I'm i a strong believer that people should be connected and physically in the office um, as much as they can and they want to and that they will benefit from doing that a percentage of the time but we've definitely learned as a society that we don't need to sit on a tube and a train every single day. When I did a year in London after moving back from Australia the one thing that stuck with me is the amount of vacant people who sit on a tube every single morning and every single evening. And we'll do that from the age of 18 to the age of 65. And I think, geez, the amount of wasted life in those moments is incredible. And we've realized as a society that we don't need to do that all of the time. And that gives us time back with families. And the amount of people that have said to me, it's amazing now because i never used to see my children in the week but now i'm i'm picking them up from school i'm having an early finish because they're around the corner or i'm dipping out and coming back i'm putting the, the dinner on the table i'm able to give them a bath and put them to bed and the world is you know the world is creating more memories with their children and their families as a result and um i think that's an incredible thing to have come out of this mm-hmm. um so there's there's things like that that i would keep and yeah, that yeah. i think it made a big difference
0: yeah sounds to me like and and it's a i think it's a that there's a, certainly a truth in it. It's also allowing fathers to step into more of a parent role. Uh, yeah, I think any, would, any working you person there, but, you couldn't parent. Yeah. No, exactly. And, and look, I think it's
1: any person that works a you know a, a, a white collar role. Well, any collar role really, blue collar white that doesn't matter. But he's out the office. You know, you think about the typical London commute. Start at 8:30. They're out the out the door at 7:30 and they're back at 6.30, 6 o'clock, whatever, 7 o'clock. Whether you're a mother, father, what well, it doesn't matter. You will likely, if you've got young children, not see them for very long in the week. And if you're doing that five days a week, that's hard. And um, yeah, I think, for, for, for people around the world, I'm sure where that's been forced that actually you don't need to do that commute, we will be naturally spending more time with our children, even taking a lunch break and, you know, during the school holidays you're working from home and you you get a bit of time with them in the middle of the day That's stuff that wouldn't have happened yeah.
0: before for many, maybe, maybe even making sandwiches for them while you're at it. It's... That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's
1: those things that build you know help children we're getting into children now but you know help children build a bond with their parents help parents build a bond with their children it's the the normal stuff and and that's great for families that really is fantastic and and you know that's got to be a positive for most people i mean i'm sure there's people that don't want to spend any time with their family but you know on the most part i would have thought that that is a, a real bonus for a lot of people um yeah it's 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 something that we'll we'll, we'll always always, I think I said earlier about the things that motivate you that one's been pushed up the priority list for a lot of people now
0: it's funny you should talk about the commuters thing I remember uh I've done a fair amount of work in London Mm. and but I would be commuting I would travel over and stay overnight and what struck me coming from somebody I lived close enough to Dublin but it's nowhere nowhere Dublin have the hustle and bustle like a big city like London Mm. does and what used to Really, as a half an hour walk from my hotel to city centre, and it was like it was like a zombie nation. Yeah, just people going to work. It was like you, you could almost jump up and down and dance and, and run around naked, and they wouldn't notice you. Yeah, that they're coming out of the tube and they've got their coffee in their hand. In fact, I took one. I like to take photographs when I'm travelling as well. So mm-hmm. I remember getting this guy in in a tube. And he was asleep like this up against the window with a cup of coffee in his hand. And to me, like, I just thought, that's so much of your week. Like, you do that in an hour every day, two hours every day, black. Yeah. Day and yeah. I mean, I yeah. That's a day every week.
1: It's a full waking day, isn't it? And all yeah. or the majority of And this is the thing that gets me. So, when I moved back to London from Australia, I was used to commute along the beach, walk along the beach, run along the beach, people saying hello, people are happy because they're in, you know, on the most part, they're in a sunny part of the world, it's a beautiful morning, they've got their coffee, they've got a lot of reason to smile. When I came back to London and got on the Tube for the first time, you know, I'm 30 years old, 31 years old at the time, um, I'd say hello to people, and I've always been that person. I will always say hello to people, it doesn't matter where I am, but you know what, even with my personality, which is fairly, you know, I'm, I, I'm up there in terms of, you know, energy levels and that kind of stuff. And I'm I'm, I'm, I'm constantly smiling and, I, you know, I am that person that will outwardly say hello to people, even when they're trying to ignore me. It, it, it even dampened it out of me. And I think there's a thing that happens in London on the tube, particularly. And I think at other major cities as well. that it's like it takes your soul and your personality and it just puts it in a box inside you and says, lock it in. Don't take it out for the next 45 minutes. And when you're back with the people, you know, you can do it again that baffles me. It absolutely baffles me. I just don't get it. Um, and and then, when you sit and try that try and do that, as you say, every day, I think all we're doing is dampening ourselves down as people. Um, and it's sad because we all understand that we should be kind to people, and we all value the people around us, and we all like making new friends or meeting new loved ones or whatever it might be. And we see hundreds of thousands of people every day around us, yet we don't. We choose not to look. And I, I, I can't understand that mentality. Don't get me wrong, I'd be annoyed if everybody said hello to me all the time, um, sure. because it's hard yeah. work. But, you know, I think if you catch eyes with somebody, same morning, it doesn't hurt, does it? It's a great thing. And you can make a really positive difference to somebody's day.
0: And I I don't know, you see people on their phones and tablets and so on. And I don't don't think it's just that because I remember an abiding memory of traveling from Southampton to London Mm. and it would have been 1977 Mm -hmm. and it was mostly men, bowler hats, umbrellas, briefcase, and they'd open it up and there'd be two things in the briefcase, packed lunch and a newspaper. Yeah and they're on the train and they're all just like this in their in their paper and nobody's talking to anybody else. Mm. Um so uh, that's a, that's a long time before tablets and phones so I, th- I think there's yeah. something in that journey that kind of says I just got to get over this and please don't you know it's it's sad yeah. actually and so I think the the working I think what we've got is is a wonderful thing uh, as much as uh, you probably wouldn't have designed it that way from a pandemic point of view but mm. uh, it's it's early as a positive I'm uh, conscious <clears throat> we're coming up against time and I wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions before I let you go uh, one your your house is burning down um, sorry for the image <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say are you telling me it is right now time to go <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah sorry I should have said that we're, we're just we're pretending um, mm-hmm. and your phone is safe okay you got that with you But you had time to run back into the house and grab one item and save it from the fire. What would it be and why? Wow. Um,
1: Right now, so I'm assuming my family are all safe in this scenario. Yes, yes. Fine, good. Um, There's a little thing that sits on my desk, which is um, a, 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 a pendant, which has got a picture of my grandfather on both sides, different pictures of him. Um, and that sits on my desk at home. And um, I think my natural instinct is i go and grab that. He's very important to me. Um, and, you know, that's from, there's a picture of him as a child. It's been, it's been, you know, that has existed for, for, nine, you know, close to a hundred years, I would have thought by now. Um, and it's something that, that I took when he died. So um, I think my, my natural instinct goes, to that, I'm sure that if I thought about it a bit longer, there'd be other other things or yeah. another thing, but I wouldn't have that chance. So uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's pretty near the front door as well. So I, I wouldn't be putting myself in too much danger.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny that because and you say that grandfather, there's a there's a camera over there. It's a I can't stretch to reach it. This book, mm. this camera there. And that's was my grandfather bought that in France after the First World War. Mm. Um, he stayed on in France for a couple of years working after the war ended. And he bought mm. that and for him. That was his lifeline to home. Um, you know, he'd send home pictures of people he was working with and what mm. his everyday life was like. Mm. And I mean, as a, it's, I looked it up on eBay. It's worth $35. Ooh, nice. Cash <laughs> <But>, uh, <laughs> <I get> it <laughs> in one day. day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, for a rainy day, I'm holding on, but, uh, it was, uh, it certainly would be the first thing I would grab. Mm. It is interesting. I think some of these things can tie generations together.
1: Agreed. Yeah. Uh,
0: they're far more important than the object
1: itself. Yeah, and, and of course, nowadays, with you know, current family who are still alive, our photos are digital. We've got them. We don't have to go and get the print-offs, because we can get them off again. So it's you know, something like that. Once it's gone, you will never
0: have it again. And I think that, that, that's, that's very much why I naturally went there. So final question, on: um, When your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about you, what would you like the title of it to be? Oh
1: that's a really tough question um, I don't know if I can give you a title but I'd like it to be something to do with the influence I had on other people without a doubt I think that the that, that, you know some kind of reference to just making the world a better place or, or, or making people's lives better as a result of of, of having contact with me um, would be would mean a lot to me so yeah I, I don't know if I'm creative enough naturally and quickly to come up with the title for that but um, Making yeah, something along it. those lines would, would mean a lot. Love it.
0: on Richards, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, Paul.